mí De pasión Me brindan los corales de su boca Y hay en su mirar
Daisy? Hello?
Hi, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Ah, oh, hey, cool. Okay. Hang on. I'm caught. My, I'm caught. Okay, Daisy, are you there? Yes, ma'am. All right. Um, I have to, let me turn the phone up. Okay. Hi, everyone. This is Sima the Inclusionist with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People. Go to www.raceconvo, convo-like conversation to hear more episodes and help us get the message of eliminating fear of difference and bringing people together by sharing this podcast with everyone you know who wants to stop hate and racism and racism and spread love. My guest, I'm excited about, I'm, I'm excited about my guest today. I met her when I invited her to speak at a start-out event for women entrepreneurs, small businesses, and startups. She grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and in Lagos, Nigeria, and is founder of Resilient Wellness, a cooperatively owned healthcare system that provides holistic medicine and health education to marginalized and underserved communities. She's also the director of Blockchain for Social Justice that uses blockchain technology to uplift underserved and marginalized communities and eliminate poverty and close the wealth gap. I'm excited to introduce my guest, Daisy Ozum. Hi, Daisy. How are you doing today? Hi, Sima. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so glad that you're able to make the show today. <laughs> Daisy, my first question to you is, do you think that it's important to talk about race and why? Why is it important to you personally? I think it's important to talk about race because racism is um, one of the biggest issues that we are facing um, in society as a whole. And it's important for us to talk about race because we can't heal and address racism properly in all of its manifestations if we don't have a conversation about it. Okay. And when was the first time? Now, you said that, you, that how old were you when you came here from Nigeria? I was born here. I just went back home for high school. Oh, okay. When was the first time that you became aware of race? Um, I guess I was when I was in um, preschool or kindergarten. And I noticed that I had to sit in the back of the classroom at a table by myself and all my all the other students got to, you know, sit wherever they want and do whatever they want. And that's when I realized, wait, all the other kids, they get to do whatever they want. They're, you know, uh, white, Asian-American, some Hispanic and Latino folks. I'm the only black kid in this class. There's something up here. And how old were you? It was like five, five or six. Five. Okay. And that was here in the San Francisco Bay Area? Yeah. Wow. So since that time, what has, what has helped shape your, your thinking about race? Um, I guess 
you know, my educational journey and my lived experience has really shaped my understanding of race. You know, being a six foot one black woman, I'm not really like invisible. Um, and I experienced a lot of different microaggressions. In addition to that, I really was always attracted to um, learning about history. So when I was like eight, ninth grade, I was reading like Toni Morrison. I was reading Roots. Um, I was reading all these really deep books about, you know, the black experience in America. And I, I was always attracted to this type of information. And it really just helped me because I, I have like this buffer from assimilation. Like I, I can't be assimilated. Okay. So let me ask you, I, I want to start, I want to ask you some questions about the work that you do, because I mean, we have all kinds of people that listen to this, to, to, that listen to the show, and I'm broadcasting here today from mutinyradio.fm, if anybody is listening live, this is live stream, and then we, and then you could hear it as a podcast, you could hear it on iTunes, you could hear it on www.raceconvo.com, on Stitcher, on any other, any other platform. Could you explain to people like you are you you founded you founded blockchain you found you founded black your blockchain organization right yes ma'am for social justice can you can you explain to people what that is and what is blockchain it's three questions what is blockchain what what is the blockchain for so for social justice and why is that important in the race conversation Exactly. Okay, so Blockchain for Social Justice is a collaborative organization, and we focus in three key areas. Um, Developer training, so making sure, you know, individuals from marginalized communities can become blockchain developers because blockchain developers make um, 250 to 400,000 K a year. And as we speak, there's only 200,000 blockchain developers in the world, okay? Um, Next, we focus on uh, education and access. So making sure marginalized communities know about cryptocurrency and blockchain, know how to get a crypto wallet, know how to read white papers, um, know how to be uh, investors in the cryptocurrency space. And then lastly, we have um, creativity. So basically what we're uh, in creativity and then also equity in the blockchain space by helping marginalized communities um, developing their own blockchain and cryptocurrency projects so that they can create, you know, uh, platforms to address issues specific to their community because that's what's lacking in the blockchain space right now, the true social impact where the people who are experiencing the problem, they get to work on the problem. So um, that's what Blockchain for Social Justice is and does. And then why is this important for... Well, first, first, first let me ask you because a lot of people that are listening have no idea what blockchain is. So, can you explain to people what it is, what it, what is blockchain uh, in everyday language, and also a little bit about cryptocurrency? Okay, so blockchain is a distributed ledger technology that allows you to track, um, track, compare, and distribute uh, information um, and power uh, within a, a distributed ledger database. It's like I, I, it's hard for me to explain it without having like a diagram. But long story short, blockchain technology has been around for a while. The only reason why it's just not getting popular is because blockchain technology is the technology behind cryptocurrency, you see? So you can have a blockchain technology, and then you can have a cryptocurrency on top of it, and you can have a blockchain technology with no cryptocurrency. So blockchain technology is the underlying technology behind Bitcoin. Okay. And so why does blockchain technology benefit 
people of color or people from marginalized communities? Well, well, let me slow down there because blockchain technology is a double-edged sword for these marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. It's all depending on how we use it and how quick we can get our communities access to this technology. So on one hand, if, um, with blockchain, the thing here is it can be used in marginalized communities to help us develop our own internalized economy, um, help us develop different platforms that will incentivize you know, behavior change that is attached to certain issues we see within our community. Um, those are the main ways we can use this in, in marginalized communities. We can also, you know, invest in cryptocurrencies to help end generational poverty. Um, I'm seeing a whole different, a lot of pro- platforms that are, you know, a blockchain for cooperative um, uh, property buying that's powerful, uh, blockchain for um, decentralized education where people can get like a college education for less than, you know, a thousand dollars. That's, we need those in marginalized communities, right? So it's decentralizing access to critical resources. Right? But the, the other side of that is that blockchain can also be used to, for financial exclusion yeah. because not everyone has these fancy smartphones to download these wallets and these apps. Not everyone has actually even money to invest in crypto. And then the thing with some of these platforms is that you have to pay like a fee uh, for your transactions. So let's say I send money to you, I have to pay a fee. I get on to, like some type of internet platform or whatever to do some work, I have to pay a fee. And for folks who are already kind of strapped for cash and I have to pay a fee for every little thing I do, like let's say they they make um, the bus start accepting cryptocurrency. Like I know that that's right now happening in, I believe either Colombia or Venezuela where they banned Uber from being able to take um, bank account payments and they, uh, Uber switched to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency literally the next day, right? But for those of us who don't have that, that much money and I have to pay a fee for every ride I take, that starts to add up. So there are some, some issues. And then also the surveillance piece is big. Surveillance piece and then the aggregation of data. Um, so blockchain is a double-edged sword to our community. So, But we just need to focus on how we can help these marginalized communities use it for good. So doesn't blockchain, isn't, doesn't the blockchain process create more transparency when it comes to financial transactions? Because I know so often people of color have been exploited like in, in, in real estate and in uh, mortgages and, and borrowing money because so much of it is, is hidden from them. Yeah, definitely. It definitely can actually create a lot of transparency. The thing here is I think the... Um, Blockchain technology can be really powerful when it comes to philanthropy um, and local and state uh, budgeting processes because if you, for instance, they're always saying that we're putting all this money in marginalized communities, but where's the money really going? Because where where are the outcomes that we want to see, right? So being able to actually put different budgets for organizations and local government and you know surf, social service agencies to see where the money is really going in real time, that would actually really be of use to marginalized communities, helping to decentralize funds. So instead of me going through this crazy, strenuous process to get my benefits, either my unemployment benefits or my food stamp benefits, I can use a blockchain. And because it's trustless, I, they already know who it's going to. They, they don't need to trust on the other end that I'm who I say I am and that I've put in all my you know data requirements. I can get my money in a more efficient manner Um, because that's been a huge problem. It's the altruism and the the time in terms of distributing resources to some of these communities as well. And and wouldn't wouldn't it, I mean, it seems to me that it would also reduce the price because when you're dealing 
with financial transactions, particularly like to underserved communities that don't have a lot of access to a lot of the the uh, easy way of doing things, that there's a lot of extra charges. But wouldn't blockchain make it so people could actually, wouldn't it cut out the middleman and make it less expensive for people to to be able to send money or receive money or get loans or pay for mortgages? I mean, did I get that right? Yeah, that there, there definitely, that is definitely a possibility. And if you go to this website, it's called positiveblockchain.io. You can actually see some projects that are doing that in real time. Positive blockchain, say that again for people. Yeah, positiveblockchain.io. .io. So would you recommend that most that people now li- go go to that website and start learning now if they if they don't know anything about it now is it something that you would th- think is really important for people to to really know for the future to understand blockchain? Yes, they definitely should because um the major banks actually just collaborated on a blockchain project across their own platforms. So what what that's going to look like is they're going to be let's say you have a bank account at um Chase and at Wells Fargo, because they are now creating a collaborative bank uh, blockchain, they can see all the different transactions and spending between both of your accounts, and then they're going to be using this to predict like spending habits, um, selling this data to businesses for, for marketing purposes, um, also using this to actually um, predict people's credit score and you know reporting that to the credit bureaus. So this is what's happening right now. So yes, it's very important that people get involved. So if more banks start utilizing this and, and, and other organizations if people in different and and people in in different communities don't understand it will that be another way that they will be left out yes not only will they be left out they'll be subject to more oppression and then things will be even more expensive not only just more expensive just more um more surveillance say about this when you got surveillance Um, more surveillance and then more exclusionary because i mean a a lot of a lot of times like people will say well these resources are out there but i think if you don't know that they're out there and you don't know how to get access then you can't get that access so what does your organization do to actually bring this to the people so we do things called economic health fairs where we actually um, host uh, workshops to teach people how to what cryptocurrency is, what is the technology behind it, how does it work, how to read a white paper, how to get your wallet, how to get started, how to stay safe while investing. Those are the things that we're doing now. We also do a lot of um, work with um, organizations that work in these marginalized communities. We actually just did uh, the California Asset Building Coalition. It's a collaborative of all the different economic development agencies in California. And we did a conference with them teaching these organizations about blockchain and cryptocurrency so that they can then go ahead and teach this to their clients. Um, Another thing that we also do is the incubator. So we host a quarterly incubator where we bring in, you know, um, local nonprofit organizations, local government institutions, um, entrepreneurs of color, you know, people who are doing uh, community work, social justice work. And we teach them about blockchain technology and how they can implement this technology into, you know, the work that they are trying to do. We just had one at UC Berkeley um, last month. That's amazing. I mean, because I know that when people don't understand things, a lot of times if you don't understand something, you just ignore it. 
And I remember exactly. when I remember when I was in college, I didn't know anybody who had gone. Well, we didn't really know anybody who went to college. I mean, just people just didn't go. And I got. I remember I got a scholarship, but I didn't know how to fill out the forms. So I never really made the best use of it because nobody told me how to fill out the forms. So it seems to me that what you're saying is you really take people through the steps. Yeah, definitely. And you have to because people have economic trauma. Why? Because of the legacy of disenfranchisement. There's a lot of trauma with us around money, just in the ways in which, you know, certain communities of color have been um, oppressed and utilized to generate uh, wealth for other communities and the ways in which our own economic activities have been thwarted. For instance, look at like the uh, the Black Wall Street massacre that happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. A whole entire community, 120 blocks burned to the ground because they were economically self-sufficient, right? Yeah. Look at other things um, that we see in our community where whole communities were like redlining, right? Where entire communities were actually blocked out of, you know, different economic tools that they could be used to build up their community. So there's a lot of trauma around that and we have to address that. Yeah, because it seems like when you have that kind of trauma and you have even generations of trauma, it gets implanted in your DNA. So you start you stop trying or you just kind of expect it so you don't really fight against it. Exactly. How did you get into this? Um, I did a lot of public health work in San Francisco, and I was just kind of disillusioned by the way in which we would keep the conversation and the programming and the initiatives very surface level. Um, and I was just like, you know, we can take this to the next level. We can get deeper with this, but it's going to, you have to be willing to get deeper in the conversation. So I started my own organization, started really doing the work in that space, um, recognizing that, you know, it's really going to take the, the cultural, holistic, um, indigenous approach to address this problem. So your background was, is in healthcare. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Tell, can you talk a little bit about that, about how you got into that? Uh, and um, I don't know. I guess I was always passionate about healthcare. Um, so I went to city college and I studied. I thought I was going to do nursing. Uh, when I realized that you have to like touch people and bodily fluids, I was like, nope, that's not for me. <laughs> so I did biology and psychology there, double major. Then I went to San Francisco State and I did a major in um, uh, public health. And um, community health education. What you know? What I got my master's degree in um, in health education it was really holistic health. And one of the reasons why I did it at that time it was a long time ago was because I wanted to bring holistic health to the people because I felt that it was really uh, among it, it was really being kept. Not that it was being kept away. But a lot of people didn't know about it and didn't have access to it, and I thought that it would save a lot of lives. So right. this is exciting to hear what what you did. So okay, so you went to school, you got you got your degree, and then what'd you do? Um, I was already working before I even graduated. Though I was already working in the community. Um, I was already already working with you know on projects with you know Department of Public Health, UCSF, uh, California Department of Public Health. I was already doing that. And I, was, I felt really blessed to be able to do that. And I started my own organization before I graduated just to educate the community on what trauma is and how can we use these different holistic health modalities to improve our health care. And then from there, it just evolved. Like, I, I, I got into a couple incubators and training programs um, that really helped me, like, solidify my idea and keep doing the work that I wanted to do. So how does somebody do that? I mean, like, if, um, I, if yeah. I have somebody who's listening to my show 
And I'm just thinking about a friend of mine who actually is going to be on the show, um, who's an African-American woman. She was in prison for drugs. Now she's she's clean, I don't know, 20, 10, 15 years. And she wants to do something in healthcare. What would you, What would she do? Because where do you, I mean, because you got the idea somewhere. You know, how do you start? A lot of people don't really know how to start. Honestly, it's just like, you know, some work is given, not done as well, you know? Um, and I know this is like one of my life purposes, which is why all these different doors have been opened up for me to do this work. But I would say for someone who wants to get started, it's just write your idea down. What's your mission? What's your vision? What's your purpose? Who do you want to serve? How are you going to go about serving those those folks like what's your value proposition um then there's so many free resources in the community that will help you like flesh that idea out how can you tap into one of those organizations there's a really great resource it's called the bay area entrepreneurship alliance i'm on their advisory board and they actually help you know people who want to start projects get up off the ground they also on their website um alliance for community development on this website you can actually go and see all of the different incubators in the bay area what are the free tools where are the free classes um everything that you may need to start your own organization wow this is amazing because there are so many people that really don't even know that these resources even exist and i think that what you're doing by sharing these resources with people you don't know how many people's lives you could be touching when you do this. Yeah. You know, somebody who's saying, well, I wish I could do this. I don't have the money. And then here you go. And you're showing people that, that there are classes that they could take for free. Yeah, really. You Yes. And the thing is, I'm going to tell you right now, I bootstrapped and I fundraised and the whole nine. Like, and I was, And that's how I was able to do the work. You know, that's the craziest thing. People think like you need a whole bunch of money. No, you really don't. You need dedication, you need reputation, and you need um, uh, just really being financially savvy. I'll say that. And it's sad, though, that I can't get the funding that I need for my organization, but I know it's going to come. Well, you're so well-known already, too. I mean, I hear your name so many places. Oh, wow. Yes. (laughs) You know. I hope there's some good things. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that for a lot of people, a lot of people are afraid. You know, a lot of people are are afraid. And I think that you're telling people to just go for it. Yes, you have to, especially in this day and age. And, like, this goes right back to race because as a black woman, they expect me to, like, they love to see you working for someone else. But once you start your own thing, oh, it's a problem. You know, and I couldn't afford to let that get into my way. And I knew that I knew that I understood what my people needed. And I knew that if I could just focus and do the work, that it would come to fruition. I just didn't ever stop believing in myself. That's the thing. Now, did you come from a background of entrepreneurship? Was anybody else in your family an entrepreneur? No. And how did you, how did you first even find out about entrepreneurship? Oh, um, I first found out about entrepreneurship, I was like 22, and I went through a program uh, in Oakland that teaches young people how to be entrepreneurs. That's how I first learned about it, but I was actually always an entrepreneur. Do you know why? Because actually, when I was like in the fourth, fifth grade, uh, third, fourth grade, I used to actually sell um, lanyards, <laughs> like the little uh, Rexalase, the colored strings, and you can like 
you have to learn, know how to do it, but you can turn them into these little intricate like patterns and whatnot. And I knew how to do them. I knew how to do it with two strings, four strings, five strings, six strings. Um, and then eventually I started making pens and bracelets and necklaces out of the lanyards. And I started selling them to people. And I was hustling and making money. And then I would, I would get my money and then I would save it. And then I'd go get more string, different colors. And then I would sell that. And I just kept on hustling. Wow. I mean, so that's amazing. So your biggest, so your biggest projects right now is, is uh, the resilient wellness and blockchain. Am I right? Yes, yes, yes. The blockchain is a collaborative of organizations. And can we talk for a minute about the resilient wellness? Can you talk a little bit about that? And say something about healthcare disparities today. Definitely. So resilient wellness, um, our whole goal is to address intergenerational trauma in these uh, institutions and organizations. So we do that through, one, policy and research, actually highlighting how trauma is manifesting through these different systems and what are the uh, tools that we can use to address that. Um, Two, quality improvement, doing data analytics, coming in and helping to do technical assistance to help these organizations shift and center their operations around trauma and addressing trauma and um, um, mitigating trauma instead of creating it. And then we do health education as well. Um, And then we're going to be launching a technology platform to kind of streamline these processes. So that's what we do with Resilient Wellness. And where are you located and are you trying to grow too? Um, our our uh, healthcare center is in Oakland. Where is it? Uh, where where in Oakland is it? Where, where in Oakland is your health center? Somebody wanted to go there, or do they need to just first look it up? Yeah, well, um, if you wanted to come to our center, you would have to become a member on our website. Um, but you can follow us on social media to learn about all the different events. We're constantly having events for the community. We just had one. Uh, Saturday, we had a winter solstice event. It was amazing. So that's how you would get connected to us. And then we we host all kinds of different events um, throughout the week. And we are on 34th in San Pablo. Wow. Okay. And what about healthcare disparities overall in terms of the quality of healthcare that a lot of people get and quality of healthcare that some people don't get? I mean, you have any comments about that? Yeah, I do have some comments about the health disparity. So the thing, it's like, especially, you know, I've had my critiques about Obamacare and whatnot. Yeah. But the thing here is the thing that caused poor health is intergenerational trauma and systemic violence. And what is systemic violence? Systemic violence starts from the policy level. So the development of policies and procedures that allow for economic disenfranchisement, for um, the violence against certain people, for forced displacement, for, um, you know, uh, different forms of uh, sanctioned violence, like police violence, um, for the restriction of resources, right? It starts at the policy level. Then it trickles down into the institutions and organizations because they then start to reflect the outer dynamic of the policy, of the policies that are set by, you know, these governmental institutions, right? So, for instance, uh, school system. The school system is reflective of the outside policies that were set um, by policymakers, on the school system itself and on, you know, outside institutions like the neighborhoods surrounding the community, right? The healthcare systems within those communities that the schools are in, et cetera. Then that then trickles down to the interpersonal level, right? And this is where the trauma really gets exacerbated because now we have individuals who have been embedded in these institutions and organizations 
or we have these organizations and institutions that are supposed to be helping um, certain communities and individuals, but they only exacerbate the trauma because they are still coming from, they're still operating out of the um, systemic violence uh, uh, uh. framework, right? So people fail to understand, like, trauma just doesn't happen. It's not like some cloud that formed, and, oh, wow, it's going to rain trauma now. No, it's individuals who've been indoctrinated into these different systems that then go out and continue to perpetuate the dirty work of these institutions, if that makes sense. So tell me, how has how is, how is trauma impacted you in your life, and what have you done? Because I would imagine that part of the healthcare is we also have to deal with mental health. Yes. So could you talk about, like, from your own experience? Yeah, my own life experience, like having, um, you know, growing up in a household that was very, you know, volatile, um, because my parents had experienced, you know, different forms of trauma, you know, coming from a different country where there was just a war and whatnot, a war that was created by who? Uh, the, the, the British over oil, right? That's another form of systemic violence right there, resources. So having experienced that trauma, a lot of, um, you know, uh, emotional, physical, um, uh, and um, verbal, mental abuse, I then started to develop certain coping ha- mechanisms and ways of being that um, were detrimental to my health. But these are the only, this is the only way I knew how to care for myself at that time. Like okay? what? What, what, like what, what were you doing? Like, um, I would say I was in different, like, friendships where um, uh, these friendships were not good for me, but I, I would stay in them anyways because I wanted to belong mm-hmm. or um, certain coping mechanisms like, um, like, like eating or um, like shopping, over, overspending, over shopping, uh, workaholism, etc. You know, it manifests for people in different ways. So and people know what co- a coping mechanism is. And so if somebody has some of these issues, it's something that they might think about, like where it came from. Yeah, it comes from all comes from childhood. It's even it's 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 either inherited through the bloodline, right, where it's passed on from one generation to the next, or you develop it right now in 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 real time in order to basically self soothe to deal with the complexity and the chaos around you. So you grew up in a family that was very volatile. Yes. And then, how old were you when you left? Um, I was seventeen. And when did you become aware of that it was trauma that, hey, it doesn't have to be this way? Uh, I, oh, wow. I learned about trauma when I was like, um, well, I was taking a a psychology class when I was still at City College. And I was like 20, 21 years old. Um, And I learned about um, I read this book, it's called Children of the Self-Absorbed. It was really good, but we were learning all about like, you know, trauma and we were learning about mental health throughout the lifespan. So uh, we were on this part around like developing identity and we were on um, Erickson's theory of theory of development. And that's when everything started to click and make a whole lot of sense for me. So I just started doing a whole bunch of self-study um, and work on myself. And um, yeah, it, it really did pay off. It really paid off. I mean, because did you go through a period where, you know, a lot of young people do, especially when they are impacted by trauma and historical trauma where they start thinking that it's their fault oh of course i went through all that and then i realized it's not my fault and what i mean when you found realized it wasn't your fault that must have been a relief yeah it was a relief but then i had another dilemma okay well now that i know um and i know that's really not my fault but it is up to me to actually you know make sure that 
the impacts of my experience don't control the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. And for a lot of people don't, I mean, a lot of people don't get that far. So it would, so in, in your work, is that something that you, that, that you talk a lot about with people? Yes. Definitely. And, yeah. Well, that, 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 that sort of seemed to me that you really actually help people get through some of the trauma so that it's not that, and that must help you too. Yeah, because that's you know it's all about service. As I help other people, I help myself, and I can't I can't keep the healing that I've gotten unless I you know I can help other people and give it to them as well. I'm like I'm a big believer in therapy. Yeah. And yes. so, how about you? How about you? Of course, everyone needs therapy, but I think therapy is just one way. And some of the Western um, Western systems for mental health are more uh, detrimental than they are helpful. Yeah, and like I tell people, I said, you know, it depends on the therapist. It depends on the therapist and what their what what their philosophy is. I mean, I I got a call from a woman, a white woman who was a psychologist in a school that was mostly people of color, and she was in writing her report. She was writing about some of the trauma that some of these kids had gone through, being young kids of color and what what they had been through. Some from like were immigrants. And so she was told by the people who were running the school that she shouldn't even mention. See, they, they thought they were being equal. So they told her not to even mention people's cultural background, that that wasn't relevant, that that was separating yeah. kids. I mean, so how would you relate to that? Oh. Now, I think um, that's dangerous. Yeah, that's very dangerous, and I, I really feel like that is um, a, a, a guilt response because even in the DSM five, the new you know DSM five, the um, I, I, this is the manual that they use to diagnose people with certain disorders. Even in the new DSM five, they have culturally specific um, disorders because we have had a different experience because of our racial background. Yeah. We are not socialized the same way in any way, shape, or form. So for those who are listening and may think, well, you know, we're all the same. We all have gone through the same experience. No, we have not. You may have gone through trauma. If if you are not a person of color, you may have gone through trauma, but your trauma is not because of your race. That's the thing. We have to understand that certain groups of, of communities are specifically targeted and have to experience certain things because of, you know, the way systems are designed and because of the media, propaganda, et cetera. So, yes, we do need specialized mental health care services. Like I had somebody on, I had somebody who on my show who was from Ghana, and he talked about trauma that he went through in Ghana. Actually, was around being gay, and coming here, he said the trauma that he went through was different than the trauma of somebody, an African American person who was. I mean, it was his trauma here was around race, but it was it was different than somebody who's an African American person who'd been raised all their lives here in the United States. Right. And so, how do you take so? How do you? How, so how do you deal with in your health and in, in your work? How do you deal with some of these differences? Some of the like the, the more granular differences, or the intersect, or the differences in intersectionality. Well, I would say, um, um, by utilizing you know some of the culturally specific frameworks that have been you know put out there uh, into our community, like. Say more. 
So there's specific organizations that really have done a lot of the work to help um, certain communities understand how trauma has impacted them specific to their community. So just really bringing those frameworks up to the surface for people to understand, oh, okay, this is how I can be impacted differently because of my experience. Now I actually have a pathway in which to, you know, heal some of this, this work. And there's some folks who may not come from these certain communities and they still want to engage in those frameworks anyways. And that's fine, just as long as they, you know, kind of have that cultural respectability piece and understand that this is, um, not something to appropriate, but something to engage in for your overall well-being process. Yeah, I mean, I notice. I don't know. Do you, do you keep up with popular culture? I really don't. Okay. Well, there's a show called The Breakfast Club, and oh, um, yeah. are you familiar with The Breakfast Club at all? I know Charlemagne the God, and he's yes. very problematic. Exactly, Charlemagne the God, and Charlemagne has been talking a lot about therapy i mean he's had a lot of people on it mean, i saw the show that he had with, with takashi you know who takashi 69 is of course okay um well he said you don't care with popular culture so i don't know um you know he had takashi on and he was telling takashi hey man you know you need to go for therapy yeah and you know what the thing too is mental illness in a lot of our communities now is taught it's, it's taught you know what? And these these different stars need to be held accountable for perpetuating different forms of slow suicide, substance abuse, hypersexuality, um, gang activity, and, crim- and, and criminal um, and criminal activity. Why are they glorify a lifestyle of trauma, and they get paid to do it? And now look at the position that Takashi Six Nine is in. He's now incarcerated, and they use. They slapped him with the same injunction that they used to bring down um, Al Capone. That's serious, right? right? right. That's, that's some serious business right there. But this is this should be a, a, a lesson, you know, to all of the folks who are watching this. Is like the entertainment industry has a lot to do with why there's a lot of prevailing trauma within our communities because they get paid by these different record labels to produce that. And then the record labels, there's a very good article. Um, I'm going to just give you the keywords because if you Google... Um, uh, music, music industry, um, uh, prison industry, investment. There's a really good article by, um, I'm going to find his name, Dr. Uh, he works at San Francisco State Team's Dr. David D. And he oh, David actually, D. Yeah, talking about how the, um, the music industry and the prison industry, they have a co-investment in each other's uh, 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 businesses. There's a, biz, there's a private prison company called GE, GE Group. And they are the biggest investor in Warner Brothers. What does a prison company have to do with investing in a music company? They know what they're doing because they know where it leads you. Because in our community, because we've been so removed from um, our, our, uh, our main culture, we subconsciously know that there's a rite of passage that needs to be taken, right? Like in the uh, Mexican-American tradition, Mexican tradition is called the quinceanera. When you turn 15, you get a quinceanera, right? Uh, in the Jewish tradition, it's called the bar mitzvah. Where is our right to pass in the black community? We don't have one because it has been stripped away from us. And subconsciously, because it's in our genetic memory, we know that there's supposed to be a white right of passage. And they play on this by putting, what's the right of passage? Going to jail. Wow. What's the right of, what's the right of passage? Your sexuality. Wow. What's the right of passage? You know, um, you know, uh, uh, engagement in, like, co- uh, substance abuse. And they know this, right? So it's that subconscious right to passage that these these um, rappers and whatnot are playing off of that continues to have our communities dazed and confused and bamboozled. 
So I'm happy Takashi Six Nine is in jail. And Charlemagne the God, you know, good that you're talking about therapy because you've act he so he has been so detrimental. So detrimental. So problematic that it's going to take years of you exposing yourself, being very vulnerable, you know, making amends to repair your repair the harm that you have done. You've done too much. So that's my that's my take on that. Wow. But that 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 that's very that's that that's that's really profound. I mean, I know that some rappers have even been allowed to make you know make recordings while they're in prison. I of mean, course. the guy's making a ton of money now. But of what course. I did see, though, I mean, I did see some of the older rap artists like Charlemagne, like uh, Fat Joe, um, and I think Lord Jamar. I don't know if you know who Lord Jamar is, um, but I saw. These people tell him, man, you know, you got to stop. Don't be like us. Don't make the mistakes that we made. But I think because, and, and I was talking about this on, um, on my show with somebody else, with, with another young, young, younger African-American man. We're talking about what a shame it is that there's, in our society, it's kind of like, what is a man and what is it that you need to be to be able to show that you're really man? Like, like, like in Takashi's case, you know, I mean, here's a guy that he really wasn't raised in the whole gang culture, but he be, felt that he needed to be part of that whole gang culture to, to do whatever it is that he was doing. Yeah, because people just want to belong. Remember, it's like that rise of passage and that the need for the village, you know, because that's what we came from. But it's been distorted and warped because it's coming from a space of trauma and, and being misguided. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and and I hear what you're saying about the whole prison thing and um, and just even like some of the fashion. And the thing is, do you really want? You know, is that what people want to do? I mean. There's got to be more than just going to prison. Right. <laughs> going to jail or, like, you know, selling drugs and stuff like that or, like, you know, Nikes and, and, and how nice your car is. But, you know, again, it's the culture of trauma, you know. So the more we can address that, um, the more we can start to end these things in our community. Yeah. Well, do you know um, – oh, there was someone else I was – I was thinking about. Um, oh yeah, have you heard? Have you heard? You know, yeah, have you heard Ice Cube's new album? I haven't. It's excellent. It really is because as people get older, sometimes they get a lot wiser, and it's called "Every Fang's Corrupt." And that he was on Jimmy Kimmel, and they were talking about it, and he said, "Well." The reason he says everything's correct, he said, because it's not just money. He says it's we're corrupting our bodies with, with drugs, we're corrupting our bodies with bad food. And he has really, I mean, it's, it's a great album because he talks about that. He talks about people needing to live another, living, needing to live a different way. And it's got a, it's got a really good anti-drug message. And somebody wrote in, they said, well, hey, he's gotten soft. And I said, yeah, he's 50 years old. He's gotten wiser. That's what I'm saying, because vulnerability vulnerability is looked down upon because we're so traumatized. We've we've had to develop like a certain exterior to survive, but at some point you got to put that stuff down and realize that that's not a way to live, and that's what's actually causing a lot of the toxic masculinity and these toxic you know things that we see within our community. But again, it is because of our experience with trauma. Because when you have been treated as a non-human in society, you have to kind of 
you know, in some ways, it, it forces you to separate from yourself and deaden certain parts of yourself in order to survive the dehumanization you're going through constantly. So people are always like wondering, oh, why are these communities like that? It's because of systemic oppression. Yeah, I mean, I think about even myself, you know, being a woman, being lesbian, some of the music that I have listened to, and when I really drill down and listen to the words, I think, what you know, what am I thinking? What was I thinking? A lot of times, people listen to the beat, they don't even realize what the words are saying, and they start to, and, but the words get in their head and get in their brain in what they think that they're supposed to be and what's a man. And then you see it spreading to other countries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly, that's the new thing now, you know. So we have so much work to do. Yeah, you know, and I, and I, w- I was thinking about, you were talking about trauma. I was thinking about something that happened this last week. I don't know if you read about it. But did you read about, it It was a young wrestler, a young black wrestler named Andrew Johnson. Yeah, I saw that. And he was getting ready, he was getting ready to do a match. And the white coach, at the last minute, tells him that he either has to cut his dreadlocks or he's got to forfeit the game. Yeah, that was super racist and out, out of control. And that person needs to be fired. Yeah, I mean that, and and what about what I was and what I was thinking about it. So then they show this white woman cutting his hair, like in front of everybody, and and then he won the match. I was glad he won the match, but I yeah. was thinking, what trauma did this young man go through, and how it's going to carry for years to come of being humiliated and being forced to cut his hair. Because exactly. his white coach didn't like his hair. His hair wasn't getting in the way. He had his hair, well, you know, had a cap on his head. And if there had been a problem, why did he wait until it was like at the very last minute? And I, I was thinking about that trauma and about how no one came to this kid's defense. I would have, you know, no one jumped up. And I mean, I don't know, maybe people didn't know what was going on. I don't really know. But I was looking at this kid's face. Afterwards. And I think that that probably traumatized more than just just him alone. Yeah. Definitely so. Um, It was just very unfortunate. And when I saw, I, I try to stay out of social media and into those type of things because it's like a form of psychic terrorism. Like it's constantly like stress like on your mental, knowing that this is not going to end. It's only about to get worse. And because Donald Trump has emboldened a lot of these people, they think it's okay. Um, so uh, I just try to stay away. Well, you seem like the kind of person. You're not afraid to talk about anything. Am I right or am I wrong? I'm not. I'm not afraid to talk about anything. But there's certain conversations that I. Um, now understand our, our, uh, I'm beyond that stage. <laughs> I've graduated, and let's take the conversation higher. You know? Oh, I hear you. Yeah, I'm, I feel Ooh. the same way. There's certain conversations people, I just don't engage in because I think it's a waste of my time because yes. it's so, in my opinion, you know, I know something may be important to somebody else, but I try to look at a bigger picture of what kind of changes I want to see overall. Yeah, definitely. Um, this was a great. I was so I'm I'm happy to be on this call today. 
uh, to, to be on the show so we could have these, you know, these hard conversations. This is where it starts. Yeah, and I want to ask you one, one last question I want to ask you. So how do you talk about race? What, what advice would you give to somebody who said, hey, you know, I want to talk about race, whether it's a person, a person of color, a white person, black person, Asian person. But how should people be talking about race? What advice could you give people? I would say the first thing is if you are um, a non-person of color, the best thing that you can do is just shut up and listen. It's not an attack. It's um, really actually helping you because you then get to transform and uplift your consciousness by understanding the experience of others and how your your lived your own experience, whether you like it or, or not, either directly or indirectly, is um, contributing to someone else's legacy of trauma, right? And then I think for certain people, too, um, you know, people of color who, you know, they do racial justice work or they want to have conversations on race. You have to also understand that some people cannot, will never be able to understand you or hear you. And that's okay. Just don't waste your time trying to, you know, educate them and and, and, uh, and uh, teach them about, you know, your experience. Just move on and go talk to the people who do care. And what if, and what about redemption? Like if somebody makes a mistake and they say and, and and they apologize. How do you deal with that? Um, I want to basically the the it has to be a genuine um it has to be a genuine uh you know apology. And I want to know like what did you learn in the process of this unfolding? That's the number one thing. Because anyone can say sorry. That's not an issue. Right. It's like, are you actually truly sorry? Right. Are you sorry you were found out, or are you really sorry and have you changed? Because I mean, I want to know like who somebody is today, not who they were eight years ago. I mean, I want to know who they were eight years ago, but I think I would like to know what have they done in the last eight years? Have they changed? Have they become an ally? And, yeah. You know, and I don't know if I don't, and I don't know if I need to keep on hammering them about eight years ago, but I would like them to become an ally and use the experience of what they did or what they said as a way to educate other people. Yeah, definitely. So, That's Daisy, exactly how we feel. before we close, I want to know, do you, what last, do you have any last-minute messages you want to give to people? And also, how do people reach you? Um, I feel like, well, the thing is, I think the message that I want to let people know right now, in this, in this time that we're in with this presidency, it's really important for us to choose a side. There's no neutrality in any of this that is going on because we're talking about children losing their life, okay? So I think, um, yeah, that's, that's really, you know, that's really what I, what I have to say at this point. And I think, yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really just it at this point. And I think, you know, we need to just be real about what is actually happening right before our eyes um, and be proactive about changing that. Okay. okay. That's, the, that's the message that I have. And if somebody wants to reach you, maybe they want to make, you know, find out more about blockchain. Maybe they want to find out about resilient wells, or maybe they want to donate some money. How do they reach you? Yeah, they can just go to our website, resilientwellness.org. You can follow me on Twitter um, at daisiesuniverse underscore. That's D A I S Y S U N I V E R S E underscore. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and then I'm, you can also add me on LinkedIn as well if you want to connect. I'm very responsive. Okay. And if they want to donate? 
Yeah, that, that's the best way to donate to um, Resilient Wellness on our page. We have a donation um, button so people can go in and, um, you know, donate to our organization. Oh, thank you. Well, I really want to thank you, Daisy, for being on my show today. And there's a lot more questions I'd like to ask you. So I'm hoping that you will be willing to come back another time. Thank you. I would love to. Thank you, Sima. This was great. Oh, thank you so much. You know, this show to me, I got to tell you that, that this show to me, it's so important to me. And a lot of times, like, I'll have, like, two people from two different cultures, too, so that we're all talking because I think that it's really important because I know that people oftentimes talk about race just amongst themselves, but it's hard to talk about race with people who are different. A lot of times, you know, like white people are afraid of saying the wrong thing. Oh, what if I say the wrong thing? Blah, 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 blah. So they say nothing at all and then people feel invisible. And then you have people of color who are afraid of being ignored, of saying, oh, saying something and people go, oh, that's not a big deal or, oh, get over it. So I think, but that we do have to make some changes because if we don't have the conversation, yeah, then we end up in silos and that's how we end up in a society, not only where people don't talk to each other, but we end up in a society that's filled with hate and fear. Yeah. And... And I know that's not the kind of world I want to live in. It's not the kind of, you know, I've raised my son. My son is 24. It's not the kind of world I want him to get old in or his children. Right. But without having the conversations and talking about solutions. I mean, just talking is enough. But, having, but talking and finding solutions together, we can make some changes. So this is Sima, the inclusionist, with everyday conversations on, on race for everyday people getting ready to sign off, go to www.raceconvo.com, Convo Let Conversation, to hear more episodes and help us get the message of eliminating fear of difference and bringing people together by sharing this podcast with everyone you know who wants to stop hate and racism and spread love. And Thank you. if you really like what you hear today, then please share the podcast. And if you really, really, really like what you heard today and you want us to continue spreading our message because we give our message through donations, the show is run by donations, please go to www.raceconvo.com and leave a small donation. No donation is too small. Or you can leave a large donation. You can hit me up at on Twitter at The Inclusionist. Reach me at similieberman.com. Buy one of my books on diversity and inclusion. Or invite me to speak at your next conference, meeting, or event. This is Sima, The Inclusionist, signing off until next time. Thank you, Daisy. Thank you.
and oh, and by the way, thanks for for um, Lila and Naima for 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 connecting them with Start Out. I am too. Really happy that it worked out. Hold on, I gotta stop another. I got something else important. Let me stop that.
Yo la quiero mucho. 
cool. Um, hi, I'm Amanda G. Amanda Golub. Um, I host a podcast called Near and Queer to My Heart. Um, it started in in New Orleans. Um, I host a, a queer storytelling show there called Greetings from Queer Mountain. Um, we actually have shows in Austin and New York as well, and we're actually going to be having one in San Francisco soon, I think. So y'all be looking for that. But out of that, it's a, it's a queer storytelling show, and it's a really like amazing space for queer people to come and share their lives. And we thought like, hey, these these shows are so magical, and we capture this beautiful moment but then it ends and we're like what do we do fuck so uh so we decided to you know start this podcast near and queer to my heart where we get to know the storytellers and then also other queer performers because you, we have so much more um than you know just our, our stand-up or the story or the, the five to ten minutes we get on stage so um i was so honored when uh pam chose me to be part of the mutiny radio comedy festival i'm super excited like i said i live in new orleans so made it out here for that um and then i uh through that met jenna vesper who's with us hey jenna how's it going and uh, she's here for the festival too so I thought hey this is a really good chance for me to get to know her a little bit more for y'all to get to know her a little bit more um, I did see her stand up a couple nights ago and it was hilarious <laughs> it was it was great it was great I got a lot to say about it but uh, you know first we'll get to know you a little bit better before we start you know with my diatribes of things because um, I am you know pretty pretty good at just ranting and raving for a long time I, I would fit really well in San Francisco oh yeah definitely that's good though yeah, um, so Jenna, you live in Portland now? I do, I do. I am. I was born and raised in Napa, California, though, so it's kind of nice coming back to San Francisco um, and like having little memories of my childhood, you know, come at me all of a sudden. How long uh, were you in Napa? I was born and raised there. I left when I was, um, I was on the road moving to Portland on my 18th birthday. Oh, wow. Like celebrated my 18th birthday on the road. Was it the kind of place that you were like, I hate it, I just have to get out? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's a really, it's like a smallish town and what have you, but it's, it's just very conservative and just nothing really to it unless you're rich or you love wine. And I am neither of those things. Um, so Portland was definitely a nice place to go to because you can be, you know, a little bit more broke. And if you like beer, perfect place. Then you're in the fucking perfect place for it. Yeah, y'all like beer a little too much for yes. my taste. I just, I'm like, just give me a beer. And they're mm -hmm. like, what kind? And it's <laughs> uh, what percentage? And it's microbrewery and what, I don't know, yeast or, I, yeah. I don't, I'm, I don't know, because I just drink. Same with the wine, too. Like, uh -huh. I've been to, mostly I've been to Napa for bachelorette parties, so nice. that's why I'm like, how do, I'm like, where do the people who live here come from? Because I just feel like it's just a bunch of tourists and, yeah. and drunk, you know, girls weekends and bachelor and bachelorette parties and, um, I guess, weddings and, and things that happen. Yeah. And I was like, who, I wouldn't want to live here. And, like, every, like, during the week, it's probably awesome. And then on the weekends, you're like, oh, my God, if I hear one girl scream one more time, woo, like, I'll lose my shit. But I would imagine that that would actually be the case in New Orleans, too. Just yeah. walking down the street is a bunch of people partying. Yeah, Bourbon crazy. Street. Yeah, Bourbon Street. Right. Yeah, that's the place where when I have friends visit, I'll, I walk them down one time, and I'm like, we're gonna go from the start to the finish, and that's it. And if you want to go back, you turn around and go back, and I'm gonna keep going the other way. <laughs> but yeah, we do have a, a lot of that. But we keep it in a contained area. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Which is which is nice for sure. Napa is just. I mean, it's changed, so I haven't been in, like, eight years, so I'm about to go back after this festival, um, because it's definitely no way I can come down this close and not go see my family. They would hate me forever. Um, but I'm not really looking forward to it. I mean, I've obviously stayed away for eight years, but I, I've heard it's changed and gotten its version of, like, gentrification in a way. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting to go there, because it was already pretty, um, you know, privileged area, but also didn't have anything of interest, though. 
There's a couple like, of breweries now, though. Right. So you it might was just be always interested. like rich people just living a life, but it was never, there really wasn't anything like fun to do or a cool bar to go to or anything. But now apparently they have all that stuff. So it's just going to be kind of probably interesting. And I don't know. But I mean, honestly, if like I can get a good espresso or like a macchiato while I'm there, I'll be very happy because beforehand it's always just, it was just like Starbucks, maybe, you know? Yeah. No, like coffee culture that i'm used to from portland oh my god yeah is showing my privilege as well i'm sure <laughs> was what are there things to do in napa for kids like i like i said i've only um, done very very smoke adult drugs at the uh, <laughs> skate park i said smoke drugs yeah <laughs> i was like did you do that <laughs> or did you just hear about the cool kids doing that <laughs> clearly i smoked too many drugs that now i can't <laughs> form words um no i didn't really do a ton of the drugs i smoked pot when i was younger but um that was it but there is a huge meth problem in napa Uh, a lot of people don't think that because they think it's just so like affluent and nice but same yeah my hometown from santa clarita outside of la and Mm -hmm. i learned that later on that it's apparently a huge meth place Mm -hmm. (laughs) i had no idea i think a lot of people at least in napa they were trying to live outside of their means like the people who who weren't quite like from wealth um wanted to live like that and so there was just a lot of like delusional like living and trying to be this and it it affected people you know and then i think drugs were just there to kind of ease the pain because so many people i mean maybe i'm just speaking from experience but like pretty much everyone in my family other than maybe my grandparents used meth (laughs) i guess too you have like the space like you can create meth there's like places it's harder it's harder to do it in a city city you know i mean portland has its issues as well in that sense but i don't know i feel like it's a little bit more chill up there people are more apt to just smoke pot and drink like you said just drink and stay inside and be depressed in that way (laughs) (laughs) depression with like a little bit more of a a realistic look at it versus like let me just try to act like i'm better than everyone else i don't know yeah so are are your parents from there too like are you Mm -hmm. like third fourth generation napa yeah yeah i'd say probably second or third generation yeah um my grandparents i think were the ones that moved there maybe but i don't know much about them other after that okay when did your parents like work with wine i no okay i was like what are their jobs yeah are there there my mother worked for the hospital my father was a construction worker so we lived a pretty like just normal middle class life um lower middle class i guess uh nothing you know too fancy but it was i knew that like if i wanted to live on my own or go to college or do anything like that i would have to leave because we didn't have the means to do any of that and to like live to you know live with my partner at the time would have um been impossible so we moved to portland because there was family nearby on his side and um and i don't know we just kind of went there and it was i was able to like go to a trade school and start a career for a while until that all blew up but anyway that's another story <laughs> okay so you get to portland you're 18 you're mm-hmm. with a partner mm-hmm. um how my high school sweetheart at okay. the time yeah how long were you all together uh seven and a half long years oh wow yeah. like from when you were kids or mm-hmm. like 16 i started dating yeah and then seven and a half years after that 
that's a, that's a little longer than any relationship I've had. And oh, I'm 34 yeah. now, oh, so oh that's gosh. pretty impressive. <laughs> Thanks. It was it was not the best relationship, but it was. Um, I learned a lot, you know. Got you out of myself. Yeah, I got me. We yeah, we moved up there. We had this, a lot of the same goals and everything. He was just kind of a, a emotional abuser and um, kind of a shithead. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm trying to think like the funny parts. I've been trying. Okay, so like you don't have to think of the fun. No. Everyone comes on here and they're so like, "I'm trying funny. to be so funny," and I'm like, "It's it's not. It's not. It might be funny, mm-hmm. and we might, you know, it might be sad. Like we can have all kinds of, you know." Whatever conversations we want to have, there's no uh, parameters. True. I just, it's interesting because I do eventually, I want to try to talk about, um, because we got married at one point, I do want to try to talk about my, like, marriage and divorce on stage in some way one day, but I've yet to, like, figure out a way to make it funny, other than that when I tell people I've been married sometimes, they are, like, very shocked by that because, I mean, the viewers can't, the listeners can't see me right now. I'm just very, like kind of eccentric i'm 32 but i look i feel like i look like i'm trying to be 21 (laughs) i think and i and i kind of just like live a very like yolo-esque type life (laughs) where like i i live in a living room right now i'm just like no car no aspirations no career and uh people are just like whoa you were married and you like had a real job and a house and a whole thing and i was like yeah but it was i was really unhappy (laughs) how old were you when you got married 24 i think yeah yeah see i because i think about like who i was with when i was 24 i'm like man if i'd gotten married I, I would, we would, I mean, we broke up anyway, mm-hmm. but like if we got married, we probably would have tried to stay together longer because oh, yeah. we were married. Oh, yeah. um, and that I also, sure. you know, I think too, like my parents' generation, like they were married. My mom was 23 when they got married and my dad was 25. And my dad's like, we were the oldest ones of our friends that weren't married because mm-hmm. he didn't want to get married. He was like, I just, we're living together. It's great. Yeah. Let's just fucking stay. Let's just live together and hang out like we do. We don't need marriage. Mm-hmm. And then every one of their friends was married. The parents were, you know, back then I think there's a lot more oh, pressure. Yeah. So they, ended up getting married um and he's like i was 25 and the oldest one of my friends and i'm like that's insane i'm 34 and i have tons of friends that aren't married and it's a very common thing Mm -hmm. and i i don't feel bad about i live with my girlfriend now we've been together almost two years and nobody's putting pressure on me to you know if if we do decide to get married in the future it'll be a you know decision that we make but i can't you know imagine you know having if i had been married in my 20s i think that's such a different experience Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really was for sure. And there was pressure from my family to do it. And it was definitely a mistake. I had like a total breakdown like a week before the wedding. I remember like and crying and figuring and thinking like, oh, I don't want to do this. But like the invitations were already sent. People were coming. You know, it was like a whole thing. So I don't know. One day I'll think, I'm actually, I mean, I've processed it. I've moved on. It's been about seven years six years i'm bad at math so like i'm not even like really traumatized by it but it's just like i want to try to find somehow to make it funny but yeah it hasn't come to me it, it'll it'll come there's a lot of experiences that i have that i try to take them back mm-hmm. you know through comedy mm-hmm. and through the funny amazing and sometimes you try and it just like it doesn't work out um but i have a joke that i'll tell later tonight and it's actually um about a really bad experience i had at a gynecologist it was right after i came out of the closet and i went to the gyno and i was so excited you know to be like oh you know this is a chance where i can come out to somebody and, and be like oh you 
yeah, no, I'm not on birth control because I'm gay. I don't need birth control. And then this lady was like super Christian and was trying to get me to like date her son and like laid into me about how wrong I am. And I'm, you know, in the fucking paper gown, yeah, on the stirrups. Like it's the weirdest place to be. And I just start crying. And I'm like 23 at the time, but I was still on my mom's health insurance. Yeah. So she was in the weight room. So I come out of, of the gyno and I'm crying. And my mom's like, what did they do to you in there? You know, just so, emotionally abuse me. Yeah. And then she laid into them and you know, it's a whole, so I, I, I now have a whole joke about it, but it took a while. It took wow. years for me to like get that out. But it was something that still, I mean, it happened when I was 23 and I still think about it every once in a while and get mm-hmm. really angry and pissed off that that was an experience that I had. Yeah. That's real. That's but you'll, real. you'll get there and I'm yeah. looking forward to <laughs> oh, yeah. one day hearing me talk about yeah. my, my shitty ex-husband. <laughs> oh man. So. Well, yeah. Can I ask, um, Oh, sorry. I don't know what I did with this mic because I don't know how technology works, which is why I'm glad I'm here in this studio. Um, I can't hear through the the headphones. That's okay, though, right? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, good. It's good. Um, I was going to ask, and if you don't have an answer for this, it's fine because I'm not trying to put any boxes on it. But Mm -hmm. um, I like to ask um, you how you identify. Yeah, I, um, for the longest time, have since I was like probably 14, have identified as bi. But I would say in the last year, year and a half, come to like... Um, identifying more as like pansexual in the sense that as as I've just grown as a person, I've like learned and become more woke, uh, as the kids say, um, to like gender not being a binary and um, me realizing, you know, all of just like being attracted to people more, you know, yeah. that now I'm like, I want to start identifying more as pansexual. I've felt nervous to do that in some ways because I don't want to like, I've, I know as a bi person, I've had, uh, issues with not feeling welcome in certain aspects of the community for better or for worse and i don't always like i don't want to like come in and be like i need all of the respect and everyone just listen to what i have to say because i don't want to do that because i have experienced the privilege of being uh perceived as straight my entire life you know yeah no Which is, um like, annoying <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. One of the comics in New Orleans, she's bisexual, and mm-hmm. she has and she has a joke about how like now that Trump's president and things are kind of crazy, like um, that in the future, the like it's it's kind of a messed up joke about gays being in concentration camps oh, almost, yeah. and it's like oh the you know gay men will do the hair for everybody, and the lesbians will build the things, and the bisexuals will just be happy that they're there. It's, <laughs> You know, the crux of the joke, but I feel like with what you just said, you might identify with with that joke. Yes, exactly. I'm just happy to be accepted by somebody. Um, yeah, because I don't know. I've had issues. I mean, because my, my shitty ex-husband, like, he, he was... He found my bisexuality to be, like, a turn-on, but something that he could use and something that was, like, his in a way. And, like, we had three summons together when we were together but with with other females but it was all like by his design and his choice and I never got to like have any you know um say in it really and they were not great experiences and so for a long time I would still always identify as bi but that I would just like be um I have a ton of internalized misogyny because of it and well society and what have you but would just think that like oh I was only sexually attracted to women and not romantically attracted to them because they're dramatic or whatever and plus also he just kind of made me feel shitty about it and the experiences we had with other women were not focused on my pleasure yeah and maybe not even theirs i mean because he was kind of shitty that way but um so then i was always just like i don't know if i even am like the right kind of buy because i just couldn't really explore it 
yeah, well, society wants to put you in a box, and it sounds like your ex-husband wanted to put you in a different box or yeah. a box within that box, and then that doesn't allow you the mental space or, you know, capacity to really explore that on your own terms. So. Yeah, and it's just, like, so much easier to live the, you know, more straight-identified life and to just, like, pick up dudes and date dudes and be around dudes, you know? So it was, I just continued that. Even after I left him, I just kind of continued down that path for a while until I started, like yeah just exploring it more and opening up and meeting some really awesome queer people that like would question me on like the internalized misogyny and the issues that I was having um probably even internalized homophobia and be like wait do you really think that way and it's like oh no I don't actually yeah I break it down (laughs) you know yeah no I I definitely um I mean I think we overthink that. I think a lot of queer people overthink a lot of things and I, I do. And I like to talk about it too, because mm-hmm. we've had, there's been so much in my life where I haven't been able to talk about it that now that I'm finally able to talk about, you know, being queer and what that means and what that means for my partners and what mm-hmm. their experiences are in mine. It's, you know, it, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. You, you said at 14, you identified as bisexual. Were you coming out to people? Yeah. I came out to my mother. That... Um, and that's pretty much it. I came out to my first ever like female kiss partner. It's a weird way to say it. Um, a girl at school that I was friends with. And, um, yeah, and had my first kiss with her. And then, like, never, that's never, you know, that's probably as far as I went. Because I was also, I mean, I was just young and not really that sexual yet. Um, but I just knew that I was always attracted to women. So I came out to my mother. She was supportive. Um, I told her while she was driving though, and she almost drove off the road because she was like kind of surprised by it. That was a fun moment. I, I definitely that's remember. That's dangerous now. Yeah, she was she was actually probably high at the time because she was a drug addict. But um, so she was supportive of it though. And then like, and then I then I met my high school sweetheart when I was sixteen, and then he just always knew about it. Um, so you're always open with him from the yeah. Job. And then I was always open about with every um male partner that I was with um, for any length of time. And I had some better experiences, you know, afterwards with, like, boyfriends that were more like, oh, that's awesome, this is a part of you, and uh, if you want to explore that with, uh, you know, me, like, let's do it in the future, but never, never, you know, not too many experiences with that. And then... Was there any, like, jealousy issues? Like, like my current girlfriend now um, has dated men in the past, and I definitely... Uh, there's some different energy that happens. Mm-hmm. And so there's definitely been a lot of discussions about, you know, what, what that, what that means. So, yeah, I think he was jealous of that. Jealous of it, that. Yeah. I would want to be with somebody else and not him. I mean, but I think that boils down to like his own insecurities because he also never wanted us to have like a male, male threesome, you know, either it was all just his own insecurities for sure about that. Um, because I think some of it's insecurities and I think some of it's like society just telling yeah. us like that there are these different because part because in my mind I'm like it doesn't matter first of all it doesn't matter who anybody dates beforehand because that's you know all that equals the person that you're dating now um, and you know that they make up that beautiful wonderful person that you're dating now um, and sometimes the bad experiences actually make them a better person or you know whatever it is but then I think with all the stuff we've been taught especially like yeah it kind of blew my mind when you know, finally we're talking about non-binary yeah because oh, I, definitely. you know, didn't think of growing up, you don't think about it because no. you're just taught this is how it is. I mean, even for me to come out to myself, like I was always taught it was like men and women are together and mm-hmm. I didn't have any real life 
role models or examples and very rarely you saw it on TV growing up. And so like things are way different now. And, um, you know, I think it's, things are a lot more common, which is, I mean, it's so it's, yeah, it's changing so much. So as far as like public, um, yeah, knowledge and everything, obviously, uh, people who've been living as non-binary or, um, trans or, you know, however they want to identify for, forever for a long time we just haven't talked about it much you know very openly um so i remember even when i started to become more open to dating women even romantically two years ago i still was not even really like that have to like what uh somebody would you know somebody that would identify um as non-binary and all the different spectrums of it. So I was like, even then I was still just like, Oh, I'm just, I'm still just a bisexual and I still just date women and men. And, um, and then the whole, like, do, am I attracted to women who are more like feminine or, or, you know, masculine identifying and all everything in between. That was still such a huge struggle for me and it didn't go well. I had some, some friends, some queer friends that didn't like my coming out process again. Cause at that point I was like age 30 kind of coming out again. Because I had always just identified somebody who was just, like, sexually attracted to women, but didn't think anything as far as romantically with them. And then I basically came out again in a way of, like, no, I'm actually interested in, like, ex- like living a life that's, I guess, what you would identify as queer. And that was, like, a whole new thing. And even though I didn't really have to come out to, like, you know, family or anything about it and have experience any um, major pushback, it was still scary because I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. And I still felt like I was going to fuck it up. And I did fuck it up, I think. You know, I fucked it up with some friends by not using the right terminology, not saying the right kind of stuff, uh, asking the wrong questions that maybe I could have just Googled, you know, like <laughs> that kind of shit. No, it's good you're trying to have open conversations. And... I was, and I, and I felt safe in the time that I was doing it, and then it kind of bit me in the ass later. But also, ultimately, even... I'm still thankful for those experiences and and from the the learning that I learned from it, you know, having to like go home and like, kind of like clean my wounds and be like, okay, you're right. <laughs> I didn't go about that correctly. Um, and that doesn't feel good, but like I needed to go through it somehow, you know? Yeah. And it was like another coming out process. So I'm not going to make, it's not going to be hundred percent perfect. I'm going to make some mistakes, you know, in the process. And probably hurt people in the process, which is the shitty part. But, you know, it's ever changing. I feel like it's, a, you know, evolution. Yeah. And if you have any intent, you know, even if asking questions, if that might uh, bother people, like if you have good intentions, I think I mean, that's I'd like to think, but important too. But I think that's even like another thing where I still like I'm a little nervous, like coming out and starting to be like, oh, I'm pansexual, I'm whatever, because I feel like I don't know enough about gender politics and everything to be like, um, to have like a full super educated dialogue with somebody and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings that really makes me feel um nervous but to you do can't, that you can't lose yourself in the process you I know? know yeah that's why that's why when I asked you I'm like I'm going to ask you how you identify and if you don't have an answer that's okay I'm not yeah. trying to you know pinhole because I've gotten into that um like I personally identify as lesbian that's the mm-hmm. identity I use I don't use dyke I don't use queer for mm-hmm. myself and that's just how I feel comfortable it's how I've always felt comfortable um but I've gotten in trouble too like one of my friends I'm like yeah lesbians like us huh <laughs> and like you know ri- like rip her a little mm-hmm. bit and she was like I don't identify that way and yeah. then I felt like such a shit bag yeah. but I didn't I had good intentions and you know and she was realizing 
realized later her response, she was like, I'm sorry, I was like, kind of harsh with you, but she's like, I'm very tired of that. And I'm like, no, I understand. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, I didn't take it personal. <laughs> I just felt bad that I made, you know, but then now in the future, I try not to make mm-hmm. those assumptions. So I've learned <laughs> from some experiences I've learned, some I continue to make the same mistakes again. Um, but yeah, I get that too. Like, I dated my first, I came out 23, dated my first girlfriend 23 to 27. Mm-hmm. We broke wow. up. Um, she thought I'd come to New Orleans actually because we were dating. And then after that, she was like, so you're leaving, right? And I was like, no, I kind of like it yeah, here. And I honestly can't afford to, <laughs> to move or do anything else. Um, and so I'm 27 and I'm single for the first time. And I didn't know, I'd never really asked anybody out. Mm. I'd only been with one woman. Like <clears throat> I didn't have any clue what I was wow. doing. Um, and I learned by trial and error a whole bunch, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I can't imagine. To have that be like, yeah, your only experience was just kind of this one, I don't know, like this one ride, I guess, if you're looking at yeah. like an amusement park and it's just like this one thing that you did over and over again with like different, you know, fun things, I'm sure. Yeah. Three years-ish, you know, but then to kind of like get off that ride and be like, wait, what <laughs> what, what now? Yeah. It was, you know, she was a former Jehovah's Witness, so she had her own issues oh, yeah. with like, she wasn't out and that was, that was what ended up really like killing everything because I couldn't. Um, I was out and it really put me back in the closet. Mm. I felt really, uh, oh my gosh. It, it was really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. But funny story, uh, now, yeah, so funny. that right after her, I dated another girl that I met online. Cause that's what you, <laughs> that's where you go, mm-hmm. uh, when you don't know how to like uh, talk to <laughs> women. Um, and anyway, so the second girl I dated and the, my first girlfriend are now together. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I'm trying to write a joke about it other than just saying that other than just saying this is a thing that happened. Um, um, that I have to see on Facebook occasionally. <laughs> it fits all the stereotypes. <laughs> it really does. But like, oh, I mean, that's the thing, right? I don't know. I I, Dan, I listen to Dan Savage a lot, and he talks about that when like uh, straight callers will call in, and they'll be like, I just can't believe somebody, my friend would date somebody else that I once dated or whatever. And then he usually is like, yeah, that doesn't really happen in the gay community because you... You would run out of people <laughs> to fuck if you cared about who fucked who and when and how, you know, and, like yeah. <laughs> if you like made the same rules that straights usually make of like, you know, bros for foes or whatever, you never do that. It's like, then you would run out of people and like, yeah. that's not possible. <laughs> so, can, yeah. Know. Can still, uh, can still happen. <laughs> oh man. That's pretty funny. Yeah. I feel like Portland is a pretty, um, like oddly small town, oddly small queer community too. Oh really? I thought yeah. there'd be a bigger queer it's community. It's big. I mean, I guess it's huge, but like it's still that town is just so weird. Like you just see everybody. You can't escape anything. I feel like I went there once in oh god, I want to say 2004. Mm-hmm. So it's been wow. some time. I spent. A, I had a friend that lived there. I spent a weekend there, and I'm gonna be honest, I didn't like it. Yeah, that's before it changed majorly okay again maybe i'll have to give it another chance because i met at this festival i met a lot of cool portland folks but uh-huh. i went there and it seemed like everything closed super early everybody was uh, i don't know i just didn't get a good vibe from people yeah. like everyone was in a hurry everyone you know i kind of the dudes were taking the flannel from the women which i didn't oh my you know, yeah that's like still my, the same <laughs> like my lesbian flannel yeah um cheers to that i'm not a woods person so that kind of threw me off too but yeah. i'd be at a bar and there'd be like three things on the menu and then they'd close you know i'm like you're open till two and mm-hmm. it's like 1 30 and they're like get out and i'm like i don't like no, this that's still the same that's so <laughs> funny you're right like that's still definitely the same we like the town like drinks hard we drink hard but we drink hard early because we're all just like functioning <laughs> alcoholics i think we all just really like okay 
okay, I'm going to get this fucking shit done by 10 because I do have to work in the morning. I am blacked out, but it's done early. <laughs> see, in New Orleans, we start early and we keep going. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. You ever see yourself anywhere else? I do. I, um, I've been thinking about Pittsburgh because I hear a lot of nice things about it. Um, or going big and going to like New York or Chicago because I'm also, um, a nanny and that's what I do during the day. And, um, and I love doing it, but part of me is like, Oh, maybe I could like go and work for like a really rich family, (laughs) you know, one of those bigger cities and then have my room and board taken care of and all that stuff. It just would suck because it would hinder eventually dating because you wouldn't be able to ever bring anybody to your place of living. Um, that means they have to have a place exactly which is kind of nice and that's not always a guarantee in portland um (laughs) that you're gonna go fuck somebody at a place they have but i uh but also my dating has always been just so fucking all over the place i haven't had like a serious relationship in almost four years so have you been looking or is it just the way yeah no i have been and i've had like some nice wonderful connections and moments with people that have lasted like three or four months but they usually just, it always just end somehow. I don't really know. Uh, I was like, does it just get really weird at some yeah, point? No, this like the last girlfriend. Is it like Seinfeld's where it's like one thing and you're like, I can't do this I don't anymore? I even know. Yeah. I, the last girlfriend I was, I would consider a girlfriend. It still only lasted three months. It was really wonderful. Um, ultimately, I knew it probably wouldn't last forever because she was very strictly monogamous and I don't believe in that i don't know exactly what i believe in but i don't want to be in a strictly monogamous relationship for the rest of my life so i was like it probably won't work out forever but i was still interested in dating her because she was wonderful and she treated me nicely but she kept saying that she wasn't good in relationships and i was like well what does that mean i'm telling you that you are because i like dating you so like can you just listen to what i'm saying she's like okay okay but then she was really nervous about uh, well, I get, long long story short, we I was like, let's go get like a dildo though, you know, to add to the bedroom. And she's like, I've never been to one of those stores before. What? She was from like, the Midwest, and she was real. Oh, I was like, did she come right out of the church? Yeah, like- I mean, kind of. And she was thirty two, I think, and had been out her whole life or most of her life, but was still just like very kind of straight and narrow about it. And because uh, that's not even like that wild. Like, no, that's not you know. No, exactly. <laughs> that seems to me like a very normal conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, I wouldn't have blinked an eye at that. So that's- She had had ones and used ones before, but, like, it wasn't by her doing, you know? Like, she didn't go out and purchase them herself, really. But that's so part like, of the thing. Let's you know? go together. Yeah. So I took her to, like, a really great sex shop um, in town, and we, like, picked one out. She picked out the color she wanted, and, and I helped pick out the size, because I have a very tight vagina. There's jokes about it if you want to hear me online. And uh, we bought it, and we didn't get a chance to use it that night because we had dinner plans with her two gay uncles and her mother. It was really nice. I was like, hey, let's go. Wow, let's you do met the that. family. We met the family, yeah. and they were really wonderful. And then, so we didn't get a chance to use the dildo. No big deal. Right. And then I was going to see her that Wednesday, and I was really excited. And then she came over and broke up with me. <laughs> Wait, those dildos are not cheap. It was like $90. It, shit. <laughs> And Did she you get like the glass one? Jesus. She bought it. No, oh. it was like a nice, just a nice silicone like one. $90. <laughs> oh, Portland is expensive. Oh boy. Niche, niche dildo. Now you're not community. selling me on Portland. <laughs> no, yeah, it's really intense. If, if you were like, all those things you said are true. And uh, I was like pretty bummed about it and she broke up. She thought things were getting too serious. I think that the purchase of the dildo made it too serious for her. Not the meeting of the mom and the no, gay exactly. uncles. That was not serious. Yeah. 
and uh then she's got some shit to figure she, out that's what she said so i was like valid you do you definitely have things to work on it i don't really want to be here for this so i guess bye but then like i definitely texted her the next day i was like yo but can i actually get that dildo though because um you bought it for me right yeah like because that's what she was saying yeah. she did buy it like for me and i was like so can I get that? Because like it's kind of like if you like a, if you proposed to me and gave me a ring and then the engagement broke, like we broke the engagement, I would get to keep that ring. Yeah, that's usually the standard. And she just never replied to that text. <laughs> like, do you have any jokes about this? Because I, I think okay. I said it once, and I was like, I was like, this is good. I was like, I, somehow I said something about how it, it was like one of those nice dildos, one of those ones you put in the foyer. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I felt like it was, you know, really unfortunate that she didn't give it to me because I feel like it's uh, possession is nine inches of the law. <laughs> that was the one joke I had from it. I like it, but um. I was bummed about that dildo. Never, never got to see it again. I you're wonder like, if she I ever remember. used it. You're like, I don't remember her name, but that dildo is beautiful. Do you believe in the whole like um, relationship juju staying on the dildos? Yeah, absolutely. Clean slate. I don't. But Clean slate. I believe. Yeah. I, I support you and your. Yeah, because honestly, if somebody, if I come to somebody's house and, um, you know, I have a joke about that where it's like my ex wanted all the sex toys and I was like, great, I was just going to throw them away because oh, like yes, I don't, I'm not going to offer this to somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to like, because you know, you know where it's been and, and that's. But if they're like top quality silicone that you can wash and like really sanitize, like look, my, they're safe to use. Yeah. Most of my breakups, I just want out valid like if i'm the one that's breaking up i want out and i give up everything Mm -hmm. um my first breakup my girlfriend that i had for um 23 to 27 all i wanted was the cat (laughs) i was like you can have all the furniture i just want this cat and i got the cat yeah yeah i got him um and yeah so i lost everything and so the sex toys were included in all the stuff yeah (laughs) eventually like a year later she was like come by and get this box and then i got some of my dvds and stuff that she decided she didn't want you know (laughs) after that time but otherwise uh, the table chairs everything that didn't matter i just you know like i'm not to me it's not worth fighting over no for sure you know even if it was 